0: This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I see that you're wide awake and you've already been through some sessions. We're very, very glad to have you here with us this morning to our sessions about to all taking God's gospel to the world, and we hope just to stir up some of your thinking and let God uh, through his Holy Spirit work in your hearts and your minds. I'm just delighted to have in each of these sessions people who have more background than I do. I don't consider myself to be an expert at all. I just keep learning, and uh, that's what we all need to do. But I'm very glad to have a good friend, uh, John Baxter, with us today. Uh, any of you know Adventist Frontier Missions, okay? If you don't know, you should. Amen. So talk to John afterwards or come by the booth. John has had the opportunity to serve in India, and uh, I've asked him to have opening prayer for us this morning. John, welcome so much. Thanks.
0: Thank you. <laughs> That's fine. And I'm going to pray in Hindi. That's what he asked me to do, so let's bow our heads and and then i think i'll pray in english afterward. that's fine hamare sward pita hum सकते हैं dhanyawad stuti ki hindu uh de Saktahe Daki Webi Apke Periwar amen and now in english father we are thankful to be able to be here at GYC. <laughs> Uh, We come here to worship, to learn, and uh, particularly this morning we want to learn about our Hindu friends, how they can become part of your family. So please give us your Holy Spirit so that we can hear your voice teaching us and be able to share with these people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, John. Uh, John will be back with us a little bit later at the end as we talk more about the mission component. If you missed our last session on uh, mission in the Islamic world, uh, I encourage you to go online. You can can download that and they also are doing audio of the sessions and I think that you'll find that to be very, very interesting. I'm always amazed at God's answers to prayer and and how God puts people just in the right place in our last session in walk three guests who uh, are from the Middle East and it was just great to have them participate and help us out. One of them is still with us here, Marshall. Marshall McKenzie, if you'll just stand, I want everyone to know who you are. Marshall serves the Middle East North African Union as the Director of Literature and uh, if you're interested in serving the Muslim part of the world, talk to Marshall today. He'll be here afterwards and uh, he'll also be at at which booth, Marshall? Avenues Mission Booth, look for the materials on the Middle East, North African uh, Union, Uh, also tremendous mission field. Let's shift now to talking a little bit about Hinduism. And may I say to you right off from the beginning, there's much I'm trying to learn about Hinduism. And I've asked everybody that I know who knows a lot about Hinduism, they keep saying the same thing. Hinduism is vast, it's complicated, it's perplex. In fact, one man said to me, everything you say about Hinduism is true. In other words, it's filled with all kinds of anomalies, what seem to be inconsistencies, all kinds of things like that. And so um, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time trying to introduce you to Hinduism, then talking about some of the opportunities for missions. When we think about religions of the world, uh, as we consider the various numbers and as we consider the various uh, entities, it's very hard to decide which numbers stand. I mean, do you take everybody who's at all within a religion or just born in the religion? Do you take those who attend the temple or the mosque or the synagogue or the church? How do you decide how many numbers you count? For example, we know in the United States, when they do surveys, three times as many people say they're Seventh-day Adventists as we have on our church books. There's a lot of people out there who feel they're affiliated, even though they haven't officially become members or may no longer still be members. So where does Hinduism rank in the process? The world's largest religion, about 33%, of course, is Christianity. Second largest at about 22% is Islam. And then we have Hinduism as the third largest religion of the world with about 15% of the world's population. In other words, one out of every six or seven people uh, comes from a Hindu background. When we're involved in missions, we always want to have a strategy. And one of the particular ones is this. We need to know what people believe and practice before we teach them the scriptures or as we teach them the scriptures. Missions is a wonderful way for you to learn more about your own faith. Because as you share with others, they will ask questions that you haven't thought of. It'll drive you to your knees. It'll drive you to search the scriptures. So missions become a very, very positive way for you to know more about your own teachings. And by the way, which came first, theology or missions? Yes. (laughs) Actually... You can make a strong case that mission came first. And as they went out from the church in Jerusalem in the New Testament, as they went forth, they hammered out theology according to the needs. Now, it's not the only view, but you can make a strong case for that. So the fact that what we believe has been developed, but it's been developed not in a vacuum, but in dialogue with others as we're sharing our faith. So knowing what what they believe is important because you want to speak to people in a way that's intelligible. So we look for redemptive analogies. These are kind of, of hermeneutical keys or interpretive keys. You look for something in the culture that can explain, you can use to explain the gospel. And those are very, very important things um, to do when you're wanting to share the gospel with anyone. In any cultural situation, look for something that you can use to take to something else. For example, Jesus did this with a woman at the well. What did he talk to her about? Water. And then he talked about the, the fountain, the springing up of, of life through the Holy Spirit and so forth. I will say a little bit about Hinduism as, as we get started here. I'm saying it in ways that are framed for the Western mind. A Hindu would not look at it this way. But for us to understand it, I'm trying to put it in some ways. When we talk about Brahman, this is kind of, um, a universal divine consciousness if you like Uh, understand that brahman has no person no form no attributes can only be known through other gods brahman is eternal infinite unknowable sexless without a past without a present without a future totally impersonal brahman cannot be known so think of brahman from that perspective this is a non-personal god with no attributes that can be known directly only through other gods So that's kind of a starting place to go for us. And we often think of this, when you talk about Hinduism, this particular divine syllable, the sacred syllable of Brahman. Uh, Some will even, who are kind of acculturated towards the West, will say things like, well, this is uh, A for, for the creation god and U for the preservation and then M for destruction or dissonance. And you'll see how that resonates with the Hindu gods in just a moment. Some religions have their sentences, their paragraphs, their chapters. Some have their words. And Hinduism says we have the elemental symbol, which is more primal than speech. And it takes us down to this very, very uh, primal level of existence and primal level. It's why it is used as part of yoga and meditation. And uh, it's very much a part of that experience. this divine oneness is very hard to describe because it's so absolute it's so infinite it's so unknowable and yet everything in the universe is is one there's this pervasive idea and then the atman is one with brahman now that doesn't mean too much to you right now but i hope that phrase that sentence may be a little bit of a key to understanding hinduism atman is one with brahman okay atman is the individual being or soul. Not the body, but the individual being or soul, which is part of Brahman and wants to be reunited with this cosmic everythingness, this cosmic oneness. And Adman then seeks through various incarnations to move migratorily towards this universal divine oneness of Brahman. Is that clear to you? Probably not but uh, that's kind of how it goes. So this Atman, this individual soul that keeps being reincarnated, uh, the the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita says it this way, the Atman has no form and whatever is without form is without limit and whatever is without limit is omnipresent and whatever is omnipresent and immortal is God. Now I would probably write that in a small g, but that would be a theological distinction. By the way, don't try to jot all this down At the last slide, you'll see a website you can go to and you can download the entire presentation, okay? So you don't need to worry about getting every detail down. It'll all be there for you to improve upon and correct and learn from, okay? So Brahman and Atman, here's another way that the Gita speaks about, excuse me, this is from the Upanishads. He, he cannot be seen for when breathing he is called breath, when speaking he is called speech, when seeing eye, when hearing ear, when thinking mind, all these are only the names of his acts. Let men worship him as soul, Atman, for in the soul all of these are one. The soul is the footprint of everything for through it one knows everything. Are you getting the idea that you have to think very differently when you're thinking in a Hindu way? And again, uh, this is from the Upanishad, one of the sacred writings. Here's another description of the soul. Think about this if you were going to sit in a Hindu home and give a Bible study on the state of the dead. You probably couldn't approach it the same way you do in the United States, all right? Let me give you an example of what it says. You are never born, speaking of the soul, you will never die, you have never changed, you can never change, unborn, eternal, immutable, immemorable, You do not die when the body dies. As one abandons worn out clothing and acquires new ones, so when the body is worn out, a new one is acquired by the self who lives within. The self is everlasting and infinite. You and I, this is, by the way, Krishna speaking to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna, the God says to Arjuna, the human, you and I have passed through many births, Arjuna. You have forgotten, but I remember them all. And then he goes on to show how enlightenment has opened the window to all your past lives and so forth. Death is inevitable for the living. Birth is inevitable for the dead. Death means the attainment of heaven. Victory in the battle that they were about to undertake means the enjoyment of the earth. So how many gods are there in Hinduism? Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, Some of you are quite ambitious. Some of you say 10, 12, 13. Some of you go into higher numbers. Let's just uh, look at that for a moment. Hinduism is essentially polytheistic, and there's about 330 to 333 million gods in Hinduism. I counted them all last night. And uh, this, of course, varies. Now, some will say that, well, here's an interesting question. Is Hinduism monotheistic? Hindus would say yes. Is Hinduism polytheistic? Hindus would say yes. Is Hinduism pantheistic? Hindus would say yes. So all are true. In a typical Western view, we would not consider Hinduism to be a monotheistic God. I remember talking with a young man at a university here in the States one time, and he said, well, you know, all religions are different roads to the same place. I say, try putting a Muslim and a Hindu in the same room and seeing if they agree on God. You couldn't find a greater divergence, you know? So this idea that all roads lead to the same places is entirely incorrect. There is, however, this idea of a chief God, Brahman, and then there's three most important gods, which vary. often they're referred to as Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu, and then millions of lesser gods and forms and manifestations. And each God has specific roles and functions, so you get something that kind of looks like this. But again, as soon as you put a diagram, it's incorrect, because Hinduism is much more flexible and inclusive in its perspective. Yes, there is pantheism within Hinduism, because God, divinity is in all things, and all things are part of the cosmic divine force, and Hinduism is always changing. It's always accommodating. It's always flexible. So... We have a religion that claims to be polytheistic, monotheistic, pantheistic, all of the above, and is very difficult for a Western mind to understand, well, which is it? And it's more than whatever you say it is, okay? It is very much changing. I really like this expression by a former president of India. Hinduism can be seen more as a culture than a creed, and although the first part of our time here, I will talk about the teachings of Hinduism, Much more importantly is the practice. I've had Hindus in classes who have said to me, that's not what we believe. And then I show them from the Gita, from the Upanishad, they said, hmm, never knew that. You know? A few years ago, I was in South Africa. I was visiting with a, uh, actually, sorry, I was in Zimbabwe, visiting with a Hindu doctor eating in his home. And I said, could you do me a favor? I had my laptop with me. I said, I have a presentation on Hinduism. And I would like to know if it is acceptable to you as a Hindu. And he said, well, sure. So he spent the next two and a half hours with me. We went through the PowerPoint, the same PowerPoint. uh, Well, a few slides I've shortened for the sake of time. And he went through it and said, yes, I think it accurately reflects. I do not want to give my opinion of Hinduism right away. I want you to see what a Hindu might agree to as their understanding, okay? To be fair in, in seeking those things. Of course, he said, I would say some things differently, but then he's a doctor and a Hindu, and he would do better than I would anyway. So Hinduism is the great absorber. It's like a sponge. There is assimilation and syncretism, this idea of, of taking in one group, taking in what another group believes, and, and just adding it and blending it. That's what Hinduism does very, very well. For example, a tolerance and flexibility are very, very important. Uh, Great diversity of beliefs and practices. Great diversity. You can't just say Hindus are this way because it, where, where are you talking about? Which group and which place and which caste and so forth. A little story that might help. Oversimplification, but I think stories sometimes communicate truth. We have the story of a warrior by the name of Arjuna. Arjuna is about to go into a war where he is very, very concerned. You see, On both sides of the war, in the army on one side and on the army on the other side, are relatives and friends and villagers. He's very concerned that he'll be involved in fratricide, the killing of brothers, the killing of relatives. And how could this be a good thing? And Arjuna decides, I am not going to fight. In this war, I will kill brothers, whichever side I fight, so I'm not going to fight. Krishna, who's an incarnation of Vishnu, uh, the god, comes and serves as his charioteer. And he coaches Arjuna, he guides him in thinking about this. And what does he say to him? Well, he begins to discuss what should happen in this entire battle. It's told in the Bhagavad Gita, which is this lengthy poem from about the third century BC to the fourth century AD, sometime in there. Arjuna, this war here, your hero. Then, uh, is his story is told, and because he refuses to fight, uh, Krishna begins to instruct him. He has this dilemma. What's the dilemma again? I do not want to kill those who are relatives, those who are villagers, those who, you know, uh, someone is going to be slain. And so how does Krishna respond to this? Well, he tells him, what you must do is follow the path of duty. And you you must know your position. Your position in life is your soldier. So what do soldiers do? They fight. Remember that if you're tempted to sign up, by the way. Every once in a while I have young people who sign up to join the u.s military and then they're rather shocked to find out that they may be involved in military service in a war and that's actually what military people do you know and so he he is told this is your duty you're a soldier so you should go and fight now arjuna don't be so upset because when you kill that other soldier remember what it's your duty and what, what happens to that person? Well, the person still goes on because the soul, the Atman, continues in another form. So it's not quite as bad as you were thinking it was. Are you getting the perspective? Because the soul is immortal, uh, th- this is something, but you must do your duty. And so in the Bhagavad Gita, and this is a cover of one of them, you will see this perspective. Now, the Gita is not the only Hindu scriptures by any means. But it's probably the most common. We have the vast collection of the Vedas, and we have the Upanishads, which are sitting near the feet of the Guru. And uh, but the Gita is the most common, and may I say, in many ways, one of the most loved of Hindu scriptures. Let's go a little bit further. The human experience is an experience of Maya. Anyone know what that means? That is the illusion. You see, you don't understand this morning that you are not a separate individual. You are under the illusion that you have some identity of your own when in fact you are one with Brahman. Atman is one with Brahman. So this is the idea. We We don't really understand our reality. So how can we learn about that? Well, the problem is we're trapped in this cycle of samsara, cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And this samsara wandering across reflects this idea that the atman wanders from one body one time one place to another keeps on living in, in an endless cycle which is considered to be a heavy burden or curse and you really uh, wish that you could have freedom from that reincarnation process moksha or escape uh, another way of putting it is this liberation that takes place as you're freed from this cycle as you're freed from the cycle. I remember overhearing a conversation between a, a, a guru and a dentist in San Diego, California. It's interesting, I've learned a lot about Buddhism in, in California and some other of our major cities. You'll find Hindus and uh, Hindu philosophy very attractive to many in the, in the Western world who don't want to choose Christianity. And the guru was talking to the dentist and he said to him, you know, you need to be kind to the people who work in your office. Because if you should pass away, you may return in another life form. It's it's even conceivable that if you don't have good karma, you don't have a good life, then you could come back in the form of, let's say, a mouse. And the people that worked for you would now be setting traps to catch you, you know? So make sure you realize that you have other lives and existences ahead of you, and you should be kind and and, and good to people. This brings us to the concept of karma. Uh, which is kind of constantly misunderstood in the West, but it really deals with this kind of eternal implications of the things we do. And karma is carried by the Atman, the soul, into the next life and determines the next life. Brahma, not Brahman, but Brahma, another variation, is think of these gods have different roles. Brahma is the god who creates, Vishnu being the god who preserves. And then we move, and by the way, Vishnu is... Uh, one of the incanta- uh, is there are ten incarnations of Vishnu, and you see them pictured here. Does anyone know what the tenth incarnation will be? It's quite interesting. In the tenth incarnation, at the end of the age, Vishnu will appear as Kalkin on a white horse. You see it down here. On a white horse, at the end of the age, to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. You ever heard of anything like that? You might wanna check out Revelation and see if there's anything you could find as a connection there. So we have these various uh, incarnations and uh, Shiva is the God who, remember all things are in a cycle. So the destroyer God, that's a necessary thing so that things can be recreated. And I'm oversimplifying in in a great way here. Shiva has many consorts, goddesses, and so forth, and uh, Kali, and and Parvati, and so forth. This is a term that nobody knew five years ago in the West. Now everybody knows. Uh, Not from studying religion, but from watching the movies, avatars. And avatars are just gods that have taken on human form, and there's many of them. Uh, Here we see Krishna, one of the great... uh, very, very popular gods in Hinduism. One of the incarnations of Vishnu. And he's an interesting character. You see uh, in many, many different roles, uh, Krishna is involved. Years ago, there were these four guys from Liverpool who went to England. I uh, went to India. You may have heard of them, the Beatles. And uh, George Harrison became a Hindu and continued for the rest of his life as a Hindu of sorts and uh, brought Hinduism back to the West. And he wrote a song. My sweet Lord, I actually walked into a Christian church one time, hearing someone singing that for church. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know what the chorus says? You know, my sweet Lord, Hari Krishna, Hari Rama. You know, uh, didn't understand that Lord meant something different. You know, they thought Lord only applied to Jesus. Callie, you probably would not want to meet in a dark, dark <coughs> excuse me, alleyway. You see her necklace of human skulls as she's been fighting the forces of evil, taking away impurities and so forth. One of the consorts of Shiva and Diwali is the New Year's celebration and has a connection with Kali and with Lakshmi. Lakshmi, sorry. Uh, Rama, now, you've been wondering, just to the ladies in the audience here, you have been wondering what the perfect man is like. I will now show you, okay? I know, In your mind, you're thinking of somebody from Hollywood. But this is much, much more profound. This is Rama, the ideal man, (coughs) excuse me, who's the perfect husband. He's the perfect warrior. He's the perfect friend and son and king. So gentlemen, start sharpening up the way you look and the way you behave because Rama is the role model for you. And he embodies this path of duty that you should follow. One of the very, very popular gods is a god that has an elephant head. Does anyone know the name? Ganesha. Okay, Ganesha or Ganesha, sometimes referred to one way or the other. This god of success who helps you. If you're going to take an exam, you can bring an offering to Ganesha in hopes that he will take away the difficult questions from off the test, and uh, he will help you in a new marriage, and new business. This is the god who helps remove obstacles, and so forth. We won't go into all the stories about his appearance and and how it happened and so forth. So let's just quickly review that. In Hinduism, we have many gods and we have basically three gods. Do not think of these as a trinity. Um, It's not equivalent to the biblical trinity because they're just different manifestations and variations and so forth. What is most important to most Hindus is not the theory, but rather the actual practices. And so we have puja. What is puja? Anyone know? What's that? Thank you. Very good. Worship. This is what takes place in the home or in the temple through washings and ritual songs and ritual chants and offerings and so forth. And bhakti then is this devotion to a specific god Hindus do not worship all the gods, of course. They usually choose a particular one of their village or their ancestors or the connection, something like that, and they focus in that direction. And um, here you see a a, a shrine uh, for the deity at a person's home. How does a Hindu gain salvation? Well, it's through acquiring merit, and even though they don't use the term salvation the way that we would use it, so the ultimate goal is to escape this cycle And that's by following dharma. And there's basically three main paths through devotion. We've just talked about devotion to a specific god or or worship of that god. There's also the the path of action, kindness, service, and so forth. And then the path of knowledge, where a person may decide to become a student uh, of, of a guru and be taught spiritual truths and so forth. One of the more common ways is the path of enlightenment, and this is the idea of the, the soul, the Atman, merging with, with Brahman as you become connected with your cosmicness and with your oneness. This has come to the West in various forms, especially through tr- transcendental meditation. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the teacher for the Beatles, eventually came to the US and spread. So basically, before the 60s, hardly anyone in the West knew about Hinduism, but because of pop culture, the Beatles, and other things, it became very, very popular. For example, just a little aside here, when I was in high school, um, living in Pennsylvania, my parents were part of a, in the, in the city where we lived, they were part of a group that was kind of an Asian club, and uh, because we lived in the Middle East for 27 years, we were part of that, Middle East is part of Asia, although it's not usually thought of that way. And they had an Asian festival one summer in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Small city, Pennsylvania, far from everywhere. And they had a Indian family who had some connections back in India. And so when they were trying to think of what to do, they said, let's have a concert. And they attained the services of someone you may have heard of. His name is Ravi Shankar. Okay. Yeah the world's best, perhaps, at the time, sitar player. And uh, nobody knew about him. I mean, the newspapers didn't, you know, we told the local newspaper, you need to do an interview with this man. He's world famous. Though. Who's that? We, we don't have any idea at all. <clears throat> so they had a concert. They expected three or 4,000 people. Between the booking and the arrival of the concert, the Beatles started talking about Hinduism and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came to the States. And at the concert, the community was shocked. More than 15,000 hippies showed up, of every single kind and flavor. And the air was very pungent, if you understand what I'm saying. I had the privilege as a high school student of driving... To the airport, picking up Ravi Shankar and his sitar, and then hosting him and taking him to the concert and driving back to the airport and so forth. And I just—it was a very interesting experience. I've always loved sitar music and so forth. But this has come into the West, and uh, you can see the the idea of meditation then is to enter, empty one's mind, so that you can experience this enlightenment. It is being touted as simply a non religious practice. Schools in England are teaching meditation as a discipline thing to help the rowdy students behave. Uh, Meditation is coming into the West in massive ways. You must be very careful to know whether you're including Eastern religion components to that or not. I have been in religious services and Adventist services where I've heard people say things they don't realize actually are involved with Eastern meditation. More about that later. Here's a statement from the Bhagavad Gita about yoga. Yoga is the journey of the self through the self to the self. I think that speaks for itself. What about yoga? Well, in the West it's thought of primarily as a physical and mental discipline. But in Hinduism, it's much, much more than that. It involves breathing practices and postures. To center yourself as you become one with the universe, it is a radical opposite of Christian meditation, which is filling the mind rather than emptying the mind. Okay. I don't want to push that too far, but there's certainly something there to be said. Purity, of course, is very important within Hinduism. The idea of personal cleanliness and bathing, and I think those are actually, god-given attributes for such a populous country there's three key pollutants anyone know what they are feces and the dead and blood so those things now if you work in the medical work you have exceptions for that because of your work of saving life the importance of ritual bathing And uh, all of this affects purity. Affects your caste. You have a lower caste if the things you do do not involve any of those pollutants. Excuse me. If you, if you're a cobbler, for example, that would be a lower caste than a teacher, because uh, leather or, or those things are dirtier than students. You get the point. All right. So this has led to an emphasis of vegetarianism. Not all Hindus are vegetarian, but there's. There's a lot the respect for life, and for blood, and for animals, and so forth. The caste system is complex. I won't even get into it other than to say there's these basically four major categories that come out of Parusha's body, and so forth. And then you have the Dalit, the untouchables. And women have their own identity through their role as daughter, wife, and mother. One of the challenges of contemporary Hinduism is what to do with a single professional woman who has left home and is living on her own unattached. That's a a challenge for traditionalists. What are some valuable insights from Hinduism? I appreciate the respect for life. I wish we had more of it. I appreciate the respect for the value of nature and the worth of the extended family. I think these are all wonderful things. I have met Hindus are tremendously devoted to practicing their faith, not just thinking about it. And then a great sense of respect for diversity and complexity. They're quite a inclusive kind of mentality. Not always, but that tends to be what dominates. And they see life as a journey to seek spiritual truth, which is something that we would agree with. However, there are differences we should understand, some major ones. We've talked about pantheism already. We've talked about polytheism. It can be, if you're not careful, a religion that tends to lead towards escapism rather than fulfillment, and you shouldn't do too much, perhaps, to help someone who may be in their position because that's their karma, that's their caste, and so forth. Um, Also, the claim that all religions are equally valid pathways is problematic, and this syncretism, the mingling of truth and error, and certainly the non-biblical teachings about death and and reincarnation, but perhaps for me, the issue of the fact that there's no clear teaching of grace and atonement, so that religion becomes a matter of my devotion, my uh, my human works, uh, that's, that's a loss because without Jesus, the greatest is missing. And that gives us the missionary challenge of talking about going to all, and I would just want to say that there are many, many perspectives here. At this point, I would like to um, have you realize there are some good resources to go to. Adventist Frontier Missions, we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, The Center for South Asian Religions is another one. I will present uh, next here um, a a reference for you, uh, There is a gentleman by the name of Andrew Tompkins who's finished his master's in studying Hinduism and missions who's now uh, living at Spicer, serving as associate director of the Center for South Asia Religion. Um, He would be a good contact person for you. As I was in touch with him this week talking about this presentation, he said, These three things I want to conclude with this and then I'm going to turn the time to John, John Baxter. Notice here, some of the attractive things talk about vegetarianism. That's a point of commonality. The idea of Sabbath. Hindus are often intrigued by the idea of a whole day devoted to God because devotion to God is very, very important. So the idea of talking about Sabbath as a day that you've devoted 24 hours to God, what a blessing. That's a very attractive thing. And then he says, make sure you live it, don't just profess it. Hindus are not impressed with theory, not impressed by arguments. They are impressed by the example of a genuine relationship with Christ. And that's what touches them. Uh, Keep that in mind. Uh, John Baxter, AFM, could you come and share just a little bit with us? Um, When I call him forward, how can he say no, huh?
0: Thanks, Glenn. Morning, everybody. Okay, great. I, uh, I spent 10 years in India, that's why Glenn's asked me to come up here, and I don't have all the answers. I'll just share a couple thoughts on, based on what uh, Glenn was saying. How many of you know, and I just thought how to introduce this, how many of you know the artist Nathan Green? Many of you do, okay. He's got a painting, and some of you may have seen this, of Mary and Martha, and Jesus is there talking to them and uh, kind of pointing to, um, to Martha and M- Mary sitting at his feet, and, Trying, trying to convey the idea that you, know, you need to sit at his feet and listen. And um, Nathan and I are friends, so I, I said, "Wow, well, I really like this painting. It's got some really beautiful artwork in it. He said, you know where this painting is hanging? The original, the person who commissioned this painting is a Hindu doctor. This painting, the original, will never be seen in public. It is actually in his puja room at home. It hangs on a wall in his personal Puja, puja meaning worship, where he has his own personal devotions every morning. So, for a Hindu, to respect Jesus Christ is no problem. They, they, in fact, to get um, someone to accept Jesus Christ as God, again, is no problem. They have three hundred and thirty more million of them to accept Jesus Christ as a God, as an avatar. Avatar means an incarnation of a deity, There's no problem. The challenge comes when you present, I happen to have my Hindi-English Bible here, so uh, John 14, 6, you probably know this verse, right? It says, <laughs> Which means, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, that's a problem for a Hindu. And uh, so, how do you persuade somebody of that? Andrew has some good points up here. Um, unfortunately, well, how many of you are of Indian descent here? I know Andrew's here. Anybody else? Oh, okay. I don't know. Uh, we've met before. So, um, most Hindu people from Hindu background are in India, but they're increasingly coming here uh, if, you, if you stayed in any hotel other than the Hilton and the Rosen, you probably have met a Gujarati person. Um, what's that? Okay. Patel, Mr. Patel, yes. and uh, So you're increasingly running across these people. How can you demonstrate or share Christ with them? Number one is you gotta walk the talk. Um, Hindus genuinely, truly respect people of, of faith and devotion. When we lived in India, We opened a church every day, twice a day, right in the middle of a town. Because Christianity, in in many uh, Indians' eyes, is A, a colonial religion. It was brought over by the white man and superimposed on them, not realizing that Christ is actually Asian. Um, And then our worship service was twice a day so that we could give them an opportunity to hear of Jesus. In, in, if you go, anybody know how often is a Hindu temple open? How often is a 7 open? 24/7. 24-7. So is a Hindu temple. And a Christian church is open? Well, if you're really holy, you go to prayer meeting, too. But it's typically a couple hours a, a week. So you need to live this out. Um, you know, if you're with Indian people you, and, and you have a meal together... You should not be embarrassed to pray over your meal. They will actually respect you for that. Um, You know, we had a guy who uh, I met with, and I said, yeah, I don't eat meat, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't carouse, and I don't drink tea. That was a big one for him. And he said, oh, you're more holy than I am. (laughs) I said, no, really, no, there's only one holy person. So how do you introduce them to Jesus? I think... At least in our limited experience, it is in much the same way as anybody else. You show them that you love them, that you genuinely care for them. But here's the, here's the key difference, and this is happening in our culture, so it's, it's not becoming that different. Putting their confidence in the Word of God as opposed to an experience... Our culture is moving totally, and this is what's happening, talking about in the emergent church, we're moving to an experientially based religion as opposed to a religion based on the word of God. That's what Hinduism is. Okay, In in the year 1900, what percentage, and I'll ask brother, do you know what percentage of the population of India could read in the year 1900? Knew how to read? I'll help you. Two percent. In the year 1900. Now here we are, 200 years later. What percentage of the population of the India could read? Uh, That's generous. Functional literacy is probably 45 to 50 percent, which is a dramatic improvement. I mean, that's you know, there's still half the people don't know how to read. Where we lived, we lived in a very backward town. They still had slavery in our town. They still had child sacrifice in our town. If you want to go there, we won't, but talk to me privately. Um, Most of the people, you know, uh, Dr. Russell mentioned the, the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, and the Bhagavad Gita. Those are the scriptures of Hinduism. Very few people read them because the system is set up for them not to read them. Unless you are a Brahmin, that's the caste, the priest caste, you're not supposed to read them. You've never been taught to read them. In fact, if you're a Shudra, which is a low caste person, you are not allowed to li- read them. You are not allowed to listen to them upon some pretty severe penalties. So getting them into the Word is a very new uh, thing for people to have their confidence in what God has said. And if you can demonstrate the, the effectiveness of the Word of God, you are uh, moving in, in a positive direction for them the number one way to do that in my experience has been praying and claiming promises of God and again I'm no expert and I you know uh... but when you pray you ask the God of the Bible and you're very explicit you know we had one quick story and i'll close here we had a a dead guy get up one time we prayed and he was dead and he got up and uh... never done that before Um, Seen that happen actually, but I was very explicit in my prayer, saying, "I'm going to pray to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ only, no other God, because I didn't want anybody else to get credit for this." Mm-hmm. They knew because they had heard, uh, because they come to our church, which we open every day, twice a day. So they came in out of curiosity. Um, they knew that they had heard that Jesus has the power to heal. And I would encourage you as you meet people who are. Indian Hindu but not just that anymore even in our own culture which is so becoming so secular and experientially based put god to the test urge them to pray you know i have a relative i won't say who, who who doesn't know how to pray they don't know god and i said well do you have you seen god work in my life yeah i said so you can pray dear god i don't know you but you're my brother's god i'm praying to you so you can encourage people say i they don't necessarily know you, but Jesus, I don't know you. I met this person. I'm praying to you, and in, in you coming to you because this person told me to pray. Would you please answer my prayer? You think Jesus is going to honor that prayer? Yes. Absolutely. So I need to close, and um, <laughs> I just my little plug here. Please, if you have an interest, um, if you have an interest in this, come come to the booth at AFM Adventist Frontier Missions. One thing is, if you have an interest in mission service, happy to talk to you. Secondly, if you have an interest in reaching Hindus, uh, I have a book. I'm not selling it. I'll send you a link. I'll actually email it to you. Um, It's called Stories of Life. It's 35 Bible Studies, Reaching Hindus and Muslims, and Principles for Bible Studies. And just uh, come by, and I'll give you my email address, and I'll send it to you. Shall we? Yeah, there you go.
1: Thank you so much. John, uh, just one more thing. Don't run away. John, don't run away. Okay. Uh, You put this into practice, don't you, in your own family? Yeah. Where's your daughter right now?
0: Uh, Yeah, please. (laughs) Just for a moment. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to get emotional here. Please pray for my daughter, uh, Hannah. She's 19 years old. She's working in an orphanage in Calcutta right now. She, uh, She went on a break. This is being recorded, isn't it? Yes. Okay, I won't say that then. Ask me later uh, her experience. But we do need to pray. But we do need to pray, and please pray for my daughters. Yeah, thanks.
1: uh, I'm sure there's questions or comments, and we're going to come to those in just a moment. But I'd like us to close with prayer. Let's bow together. Dear Father in Heaven, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit, and we are so thankful for Jesus. We have the privilege of knowing you, and we want to share you with others. Lord, we think of millions who are seeking to follow what light they have. May we be drawn to have a compassionate heart, your heart that reaches out to those who don't know you as we have the privilege of knowing. Lord, may our hearts be stirred into action. And Father, right now I very specifically pray for Hannah who's serving as a student missionary. I pray that your forces will surround her with angelic power May your spirit anoint her. May she know at this moment that there are others praying for her. And may we continue to pray. Be with the Baxter family who are giving of their very best to you and to your service in India. Lord, we think of many others. I thank you for the Hindus who have come to know you. And I thank you for the thousands who are touching lives in, in this wonderful part of the world. And wherever we go, when we Need someone. May they know that we have been with Jesus at GYC. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View
0: Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, Please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.